You're listening to a 95 BFM podcast. You're tuned into The Wire, one hour of current affairs and analysis starting now. Tēnā koutou katoa, ka Joe tōko ingoa no mai haere mai ki te Wire mō tēnei Kia ora and welcome to The Wire for Rāmere Friday the 18th of November. I'm your host Joe and I'm accompanied in the studio by my producers Danielle and David and we'll be with you for the next hour. This week on the show I'll be speaking to Professor Janet Hook from the University of Otago Wellington about the recently greenlit smoke-free bill. I'll also be speaking to Dr Nick Rawlins from the Paleogenetics Lab at the University of Otago about how paleoncology and ancient DNA can help inform whether mahinga kai practices could be sustainable as well as how a CT scan of a toothed bird fossil has possibly changed the history of modern birds. Danielle speaks to Cindy Baxter from the Coal Action Network about what role geoengineering plays in climate action. David spoke to Mike Lee for our regular segment, City Councilling. They spoke about Auckland's railway network. David also spoke to Jason Young, a politics and international relations professor from Victoria University of Wellington, about the protests occurring in China. We have a great show for you today, so keep it on the B for the next hour. He aha ofakaro, we'd love to hear your thoughts on any of these pieces. So tukipa tui mai, you can text us on 5395. Why my Rane or give us a call in studio on 0930938793879. Also remember you can catch all these stories and more by podcast on the 95BFM website. Now, let's get into the wire for Friday. Now, tell me about your father. City Councilling on 95BFM, our weekly chat with the good people of Auckland Council. Billy Joel is playing at Eden Park this Saturday. However, concert goers will not be able to take the train to the venue as Kiru Rail is closing the network for repairs. Auckland's rail system is undergoing an almost $300 million upgrade and rebuild in time for the opening of the City Rail Link. This means large swaths of Auckland's rail network will be out of use for the next three years. I spoke to Councillor Mike Lee about the issue and how it will affect Aucklanders. What do you think about Kiwi Rail's plans to close large chunks of the rail network until next year? I, I've always been a great supporter um, of Kiwi Rail, and I think a lot of a lot of problems accrued to and cost accrued to Auckland because Kiwi Rail or its predecessor Transrail was booted out of the uh, passenger contract. Um, and so, and then a, an overseas um, consortium was brought in, a company was brought in to, to run our, our passenger services. But Kiwi Rail had to stay in anyway because they owned the network and they owned the signals. And so the, the people had the ambition of booting them out. It, it didn't, didn't work out and we got a, a much more complicated system um, than we should have and a more costly system. But nonetheless... So Kiwi Rail have been alienated or distanced from passengers for some time, you know, some decades now in Auckland. And so the, the plan by Kiwi Rail was written by engineers without, any, without much consideration of passengers and, um, and the convenience of passengers and how essential it is to keep our patronage up, keep people off the roads get people onto electric trains, um, low-carbon emitting 
rail, but um, they've put all their focus on getting the work done, this uh, underlay work, this um, substrate work done uh, in time for the opening of the CRL, which is, which is a, uh, an understandable goal. Um, they want everything perfect by the time we have the CRL. We're going to have high-frequency, headway-frequency trains racing through the tunnel and out along the network, and so they want everything really spick and span for that. It's not about the problem. I see it's referred to in the 2015 Regional Land Transport Plan for some years, but now there's a rush to get it all done. My concern is this. Our rail patronage, which took years to build up and got to 20 million per year, has now collapsed to about half of that, between eight and nine million passengers per year. AT um, are projecting, you know, a 70% year-on-year, well, 70% of what was there before. However, I think they may be optimistic. The re all, all we can go by is what's happened now. We have lost half our passengers. We've got to get them back. If you shut down rail lines for months at a time, we will not get them back. In fact, we may lose more, and I'm sure we will lose more because what has happened, people have reverted to the old culture, it seems. People have gone back to the motor car, which is the last thing we want or need. So my pitch to Kiriwa was, can we please reweigh the factors and so rather than putting primary weight on getting things done for the opening of the CRL, put more weight on keeping patronage up, keeping passengers using the trains, because you can have a brand new CRL opening with all sorts of uh, flash, incredibly fast headway trains, but they ain't much good if there's no one on them. So please think of the human factor. So that's... that's I, I hope they'll listen, but um, at least I'll try. And, and other people are concerned as well, of course. But I think it's important we take a more integrated, holistic approach to our public transport rather than a fairly narrow engineering approach which focuses on getting everything done in time for a certain deadline, which they're not even sure about anyway. You talked about people reverting back to cars and on top of the Kiwi Rail line closures, there are problems with the buses, frequent bus cancellations. Do you think this will mean Aucklanders will have less confidence in their public transport network? It's kind of heartbreaking, but I fear that. You know, my whole life in, in regional government was mainly focused on building up the rail network and bus network. But the problem is Kiwi Rail is re relying on uh, bus replacements for train services. The problem is we have a major problem with driver shortages, some companies revealingly more than others. And so if you're going to be re relying on bus replacements, where are the drivers going to come from for Kiwi Rail? when we can't get enough for our core services. One of the sad things about the bus uh, driver shortage is not the poor wages, and wages are poor, and not the conditions 
um, split shifts are extremely difficult to, to live with and have a normal life. But fear of violence, there's quite a high level of violence on, on finding out uh, or fear of violence among our bus drivers. And that's one of the kernels for people to get out of the industry. So if, if we're relying on buses to take up the slack um, for trains, um, it may be a flawed strategy, uh, which is why a, a more integrated approach, and if that takes a bit longer, well, the CRL was meant to be finished in 2023. Delays happen, and if, if there's a good reason to delay um, th this um, rail work, rail renewal program, somewhat, not forever. Um, I think it means that we're going to retain confidence of our train users. Well, wouldn't you look at that? What are Auckland Council's plans for AT's operational troubles? Well, it's, to be fair, um, for once, this is, this is not AT's fault. Um, possibly in terms of bus driver shortages, AT could be criticised for contracts that seem to reward companies, um, who, you know, who, who pay low wages. Um, but in terms of the overall problem, especially with the rail network, you can't really blame AT, um, perhaps only for not um, getting on the case with Kiwi Rail and, and holding them to account for the significant amount of money that Auckland ratepayers pay Kiwi Rail every year um, for, 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 to, to, for access to the network. In other words, Kiwi Rail are the landlord, and any landlord nowadays is expected to have fit-for-purpose accommodation. And so we're talking about, you know, a significant amount of money. Kiwi Rail have had about $600 million uh, dollars out of the super city in the last 12 years. And so, yeah, it's, it's, I think we all need to put some pressure on Kiwi Rail. And I always, always had a soft spot for Kiwi Rail and been a supporter um, to keep them up to the mark in terms of, you know, pr providing value for money as the rail network landlord because we're not getting value for money now, right now, um, at, at a time when we desperately need it. That was City Councillor Mike Lee talking about the closure of Auckland's rail network over the next few years. Have you tried mindfulness? Try mindfulness. City Councilling on 95BFM. We don't agree with violence. We do not agree with the government. Ah! Nah, we do. The Wire. The Health Select Committee has given the green light to the smoke-free bill this week. Its report makes additional recommendations as well, like capping the number of tobacco retailers to no more than 600. Yesterday, Action for Smoke-Free 2025 released its Year 10 survey as well, which shows very low smoking by adolescents, but a slight rise in daily vaping overall and a larger rise for Māori teens. 
Now, I spoke to Professor Janet Hook from the University of Otago, Wellington, on this matter, and I started off by asking her about how this will impact inequalities within tobacco usage. Well, we have some idea of the impact on um, inequities caused by smoking use from modelling work that's been undertaken, and uh, that shows that the denicotinisation measure in particular is going to have a really profound effect on smoking prevalence. It's going to make smoking prevalence drop very quickly, and that's going to occur across the entire population of people who smoke. So it's going to reduce the differences between people of different ethnicities that exist at the moment. How will this bill address the increase in vaping rates and how do they compare to smoking rates? Um, Well, the bill is really designed to address the most harmful product, which of course is smoked tobacco. So it's got a few additional components about creating a register of people um, who uh, sell vaping products, but its focus is on smoked tobacco rather than on vaping products. So I think there's a growing recognition that youth vaping in particular is rising very quickly and that a lot of young people who have never previously smoked are now vaping and that some additional interventions are going to be needed to reduce youth vaping. Um, At the moment we know that uh, youth smoking rates um, are are very low uh, and youth vaping rates are higher. So um, what we're seeing is not that vaping is displacing smoking, vaping seems to be additive and so we've got more young people using nicotine than we had previously so obviously that's something that's concerning and some additional measures are going to to be needed to deal with that. Reading here the Action for Smoke Free 2025 Year 10 survey was released and although it showed a very low smoking from adolescents, you said um, there obviously was that slight rise um, with vaping and there was a larger rise especially for mouldy teens. Is this concerning? And I mean, the sensible thing to do would be to talk with um, Māori um, spokespeople about that. I mean, you might want to talk to somebody like Salah Hart from Harpai. I think it's probably best to have Māori working in this space, commenting on data that relate to Māori. How effective is this proposal and how does it compare to other countries? And was there a potential influence from other countries when it came to smoke-free bills? Um, I think what any um, evidence-based public policy does is to explore what kind of research has been undertaken and what findings uh, are available. Um, And so that's what this proposal has done as well. So it's looked at uh, trials, um, which are studies where people are given an intervention and then their behaviour is compared to the behaviour of people in a control group. And we have a lot of trial evidence on the denicotinisation policy, and that's been very useful in informing the measure in our bill. There's also been modelling work that's been undertaken, and that's very robust work that's been led out of the University of Melbourne. Uh, We also know that there have been retail reduction measures in other jurisdictions, and that other countries are planning 
planning these measures and we know that the smoke-free generation has been implemented in a city in the US and that several other countries are considering not only a smoke-free generation but a nicotine-free generation. So I think there's been international evidence that we've been able to draw on here in Aotearoa and there's also been opportunities for international dialogue. I think what we're doing here in Aotearoa is absolutely world leading and I think what we're seeing more and more and certainly what I'm seeing among my international colleagues is that there is enormous interest in the leadership that's been shown here and many countries are now reorienting their thinking and considering how they can follow suit. That was Professor Janet Hook from the University of Otago, Wellington, speaking about the smoke-free bill. You are on the wire for Ramadan Friday. Remember, you can text us in 5395 or you can give us a call on 0930938879. That's 5395 if you wish to text, 0930938879 if you wish to give us a call. Let us know what you think of all the pieces you have heard so far. We'll be right back after this short break. I don't know how to say this. Better Legus Star? <laughs> You're not a child of the 80s. If you were, you would know the film with a similar name. The star is Beetlejuice. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> the Wire. The countdown is on. Sharon Van Etten and her full band are playing at Auckland's magnificent Civic Theatre on Monday, December the 12th. Sharon Van Etten is one of this century's great songwriters. With a live show described as nothing short of stunning, come and witness a legend being written in real time. With support from Nadia Reid, we'll say it again, this is quite simply unmissable magic. Wellington is sold out. Grab the last remaining Auckland tickets now from Ticketmaster. What's a seven-letter word for Street Fighter? No idea. I know that tonight at Ponsonby Social Club there's... An Albanian night with Vanessa Luma live, followed by Nick Timms and Coriesco. And tomorrow... DJs John Boogie and TDK. Same old Ponsonby Social Club, 152 Ponsonby Road. Avarst ye me hearties, away upon yonder desert isle a forgotten treasure awaits, riches beyond your ken that many a sailor has died in want of. Yar! It's the 95 BFM Summer Sorted Super Prize Pack, featuring... Return flights for two to Hawaii thanks to Hawaiian Airlines. A $300 voucher for Taddy's Designer Recycle. A Napoleon chili bin packed full of nice blocks and Little Island goodies with a refill delivered to an Auckland-based celebration of your choice. A $250 voucher for Mezzi Bar. A year's supply of Lion's Mane capsules from Flow State. A cheeky lifetime supply of cheeky clean toilet paper spray. $2,000 to spend at Galbraith's. A summer's supply of your daily brain drink thanks to Ripper. An invite to all Mad Man movie premieres and screenings for 2023. A six-month candle subscription from Crushes. A year's supply of Genevieve's premium sauces and dressings. A double pass to Womad. And more. Be marks the spot for the Summer Sorted Super Prize Pack. If you've got a Squawker or Woofer B card, you're already in to win. Twice. There's no limit on entries, but you've got to have a B card to win. For entry details and all the info, go to 95bfm.com. Oh, hey. Bloody hell, mate. Hey. G'day, haven't seen you around for ages. What have you been up to? Yeah, just been real bogged down thinking about space. Oh, like planets and yeah. black holes and stuff? Yeah, quasars, asteroids, really all the space stuff. 
Oh, so that's your new job now? Like, hit the observatory? Nah, I've just been thinking about it. It's taken me ages, though. It's big ass. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Spaced Out. Josh Auraki from Auckland Stardome Observatory and Planetarium talks everything spacey on Spaced Out. 4.40 every other Tuesday, only on 95 BFM Drive. Here in the twilight. This is a sad, sad day. Um, BFM, the font of liberalism and tolerance at the centre of the University of Auckland. The Wire. Welcome back to The Wire for Ramere Friday. I will now pass it over to Daniel. The world is under growing pressure to find sustainable options to cut emissions. Could climate controlling technology be the answer? Using technology to interfere in the climate and stop global warming is sounding more and more enticing. Technology entrepreneurs from around the globe claim to have solutions using geoengineering. From shooting tiny particles in the air to reflect a little more sunlight back to space, to technology that can suck CO2 out of the air. I wanted to understand what geoengineering is and what we should make of it. I spoke with Cindy Baxter on the matter. Cindy Baxter is an investigative researcher and policy advisor and worked over 30 years on a range of environmental issues. I asked her, do those technolo- technology solutions really lead to sustainable solutions? Or are we distracted by visions of a technological future and distract from what is really needed, cutting emissions? What is geoengineering? Geoengineering is a concept of creating a very large change to the, I suppose, geological formations or, um, or the weather even, um, to try to suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere or to bury emissions somewhere deep in the earth. So it's engineering uh, very geography. I think that's how the terminology came up. And it's put as a solution to climate change, which I don't think it is really. Yeah, what kind of technological innovations or ideas are there? Well, there's a thing called carbon capture and storage, which is... um, which has been going along for long, for many years now, and it's been um, basically this concept of being able to capture fossil fuel emissions at source when they're burnt and bury them in the ground. And that um, basically it's proved to be incredibly expensive and incredibly um, ineffective. Um, so there was a great headline I think I read last year with saying that if BP, Shell and Chevron can't, if BP, Shell, Chevron and ExxonMobil cannot make this work, who can? So um, essentially, um, the, one of the problems with um, carbon capture and storage is that it's being invented by the fossil fuel industry so that it can continue, which it cannot if we want to solve climate change. What are exactly the risks that are involved by trusting those kind of technologies and using them? Well, the risk is, I mean, for carbon capture and storage, one of the risks is that it will leak out. Um, And um, if if they bury, you know, CO2 gas in deep geological formations, how long is it going to stay there? Because essentially it would have to stay there forever, and no one can guarantee that. The other risk really is that people see it as a solution and they let the fossil fuel industry continue and dangerous climate change happens. That's the biggest risk, to be honest. That's, you know, that's by far the biggest risk is that it doesn't work and it doesn't look like it is going to work. It's being used now as an excuse to continue, for the, by the fossil fuel industry, to continue burning fossil fuels. And, you know, there are so many risks in that. 
Yeah, so is it this kind of a um, futuristic dream we can hang on to while fossil fuel yeah. is still used? It's like a techno fix, and you know, love coming up with new technology. It, you know, you can get billions of research, and you can get all excited about the technology. And sure, we do need new technologies to solve the issue of climate change. But you know, there's another one. There's another one which is called they call it solar radiation management, which is terrifying. Basically, putting little sparkly mirrors. Um, um, some sort of um, a gas or something in, into the into the atmosphere to dim the sun so that it's not as warm. Solar radiation management, literally managing the radiation of the sun. Now, there's somebody got to be in charge of that. And what if their government falls over and they turn it off one day? Because it would have to be a continual thing for it to work. I mean... It's a lot easier just to stop fossil fuels, stop burning fossil fuels. The, the, the technology, technological advancement needs to go into alternatives to fossil fuels and low-emission technology or zero-emission technologies, not technologies that are going to allow the continuation of the burning of fossil fuels. I'm also wondering, like, what is in it for those companies? Do they have... a revenue oh. model for that? Or why do, they, yeah. do those companies well, I mean, want the, it? Well, the, the 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 fossil fuel industry is paying them a lot of money to develop it. I mean, there's some there's some technologies like direct air capture, which we will pro probably need um, because we've taken such a long time to stop burning fossil fuels that we're now committed to a certain level of climate change. And if we don't, if we want to, some argue that if we want to keep warming limit warming to 1.5 degrees, we're going to have to remove carbon from the atmosphere in some way. So there is possibly going to be a need for it. But the um, the motivation around this is, is money. I mean, obviously, you know, if you've got Chevron and ExxonMobil paying you to to develop this um, this technology, then, then you'll do it. If you get someone to pay you to do something and you come up with an idea and you go to somebody and ask them to pay you to do it and they do it, well, that's the motivation. Um, sometimes, sometimes the motivation is to try and save the world, but more often than not, it's just you know, it's sort of technological innovation is driven by the need to continue business as usual. What is? I was. I'm also wondering what is the role of governments in this? Can what role can governments play in <clears throat> valuing those technologies? Yeah, well, I mean that's very interesting because sometimes. Um, You know, for example, a it's a very good question. Sometimes, for example, the uh, governments will subsidize the technological development. For example, there was um, a big um, carbon capture and storage project in the U.S. called Kemper, and that was sub heavily subsidized by the government, by the U.S. government, for quite some time until it ended up losing so many billions. Even the government wrote it off. They went nah. They were not funding it anymore, and they, and they withdrew anymore. You know, and they and they wrote off the funding they had given it. So you know, this is and and often with these carbon capture technologies, it costs so much that they require governments to underwrite the uh, project. <clears throat> so that um, it gives it more stability, so, that, so they can attract more money. So that's often the case when that's when governments get involved. Governments can also be involved in regulating 
those technologies and um, and allowing them to go ahead or, or, or encouraging or discouraging them. And also in the global regulatory environment, governments are involved. But there's also the involvement of a government when you've got you've got this, um, for example, this um, a direct air capture, which is sucking CO2 out of the atmosphere. Well, a government can see that as an offset, which is the, another real huge, huge issue, a difficult issue with with, um, with trying to stop climate change, is basically. It can say, well, if you suck five million tons of carbon out of the atmosphere, that means we can allow five million tons to go into the atmosphere because because you're at a neutral ground and there's no, you know, there's actually you end up with net with net zero. We're incredibly bad at this. Um, New Zealand is probably, I think, it's got the largest proportion of its target being met through through just buying international offsets, and it's just it's ridiculous. We need to actually cut emissions and that's what everybody needs to do first before inventing some crazy technology that's going to suck carbon out of the atmosphere that's going to be you know you know before relying on any of those to meet our targets you know our targets should be zero emissions that was cindy baxter and we spoke about the role of geoengineering in climate action so around you know up to eight or ten thousand shit the wire Protests about China's zero COVID policy have rocked the country over the past week. The aspects include targeted lockdowns, strict quarantine measures and widespread testing. But citizen frustration and potential economic impact have prompted experts to ask whether the policy is actually worth it. I spoke to Victoria University of Wellington Politics and International Relations Associate Professor Jason Young about the topic. Why is China continuing with its zero COVID policy? So... China's zero dynamic zero COVID policy is basically very very similar to the original types of initiatives and policies that governments would take uh, when COVID first started spreading. Um, so countries back then nobody had a vaccine, and so the idea was to stop the spread of the virus by um, having lockdowns and by preventing transmission uh, within the community, and also through um, using PCR testing to identify uh, where where COVID was, where it was spreading, and to try to isolate it. Now, a lot of countries around the world have, in fact, all countries around the world except China, have then moved to um, a different strategy, which is one that relies on having a broad level of vaccination uh, within the population, particularly in vulnerable communities, such as the elderly, uh, and then also um, having people... Uh, self-isolate at home if they if they are test positive for COVID. So why hasn't China moved to that second strategy? Um, there's a few different reasons. The first one is um, they haven't used the vaccines that were developed uh, overseas. They've, they've continued to use their own vaccines, which are effective but not as effective. Uh, second reason is their vaccination rates, um, particularly in elderly population, are not as high as um, in countries such as New Zealand were when we moved to that new strategy. Third reason is the healthcare system is patchy in parts of China, particularly in rural China. So therefore, even when New Zealand moved to 
uh, the new strategy, there was still a lot of people got sick and there was a lot of need for ICU beds and there was a big run on the hospitals and they came under increasing pressure. Um, and so they're worried in China that they won't be able to handle that. Um, um, a lot of deaths and a lot of um, discomfort. And uh, I think the fourth reason is that they're sort of politically wedded to the idea that China has responded to COVID-19 in a way that distinguishes it from other countries, particularly America. And there's been a lot of media and propaganda in China criticising Western countries for their failure to look after their people. Um, And so the moving to the second strategy would um, require some sort of acceptance that COVID was in the community and that's politically quite hard for China to do. These are some of the largest protests in China, certainly in my lifetime. Have you ever seen anything like this in the past, say, 20, 30 years? So um, so yes and no. So on the yes side, um, there's protests in China all the time. Um, so there's a lot of protests about labour issues, protests. Uh, there was a Me Too movement, protests, uh, protests about... Um, uh, corruption and protests about sort of land appropriation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there is a protest, sort of consistent protest movement that does go on in China, but usually it's very localised um, around a specific issue. So this is, uh, for me, one of the first times I've seen uh, in my lifetime, well, not my lifetime, sorry, but um, uh, in, the, in the last few decades, seen a protest movement that is um, sort of focused around uh, one issue, which is you know, frustration with the um, uh, COVID lockdowns and, and COVID policies, the dynamic zero COVID policies within China. Uh, so this is a, a little bit different to some of those other protests and is more similar to some of the earlier protests in, in the late 70s or protests in, in the mid-80s that were sort of unified um, around this one particular issue. And, of course, that doesn't mean that all the protests are, are all about the same thing. Um, but they are unified on that sort of deep frustration that people have with the the COVID policies. What do you think will come of these protests? Will it result in an easing of restrictions or will they just become more brutal and trying to crack down on it? I think a couple of things. Um, It's always hard to predict the future, but I would suggest that the, the, the police in China and the Wuxing and the um, uh, People's Action Police, they, they will be making a concerted effort to crack down on localised protests and already the protest movement has started to, to falter. Um, and so there will be uh, a big effort to stop these types of public demonstrations and in particular to stop any type of online communication and social media presence which is promoting these types of um, frustrations. I and mean, that's already happening. Um, I think also that we're likely to see uh, the government shift the COVID policy somewhat. Um, but there they sort of are, are in a tricky position. Um, and the tricky position is because, um, as I mentioned before, the preparations for moving to the next stage or strategy for um, COVID policy are, are not yet formulated properly. So whilst I think that there will be some acknowledgement that the policy has been too draconian and some easing of, of, of certain types of issues, I would be surprised to see in the next sort of um, month or so any type of shift to, for example, uh, the New Zealand situation where you know, there's free movement of travel and, and um, basically life has, has returned to normal with, with some restrictions here and there. What is the end game with China's zero COVID policy? You mentioned a shift to a new stage. Like, what next? 
Um, well, I think you know the end game is is, is very similar to, to to everyone everywhere in the world, right? Um, that you know China wants to manage um, public health uh, outcomes and the ability of people to to go about their life and to you know for the economy to function, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, so the challenge that China has is, is actually getting to that stage which other countries around the world have already gotten to. They probably need a new vaccine or to purchase vaccines from abroad, but politically that's quite challenging at the moment. Uh, they also need to sort of get rid of this, this obsession with PCR testing and the sort of idea that this old dynamic zero COVID strategy is the one that will keep China safe forever because it's a, it's a strategy with no exit. Um, and so they need to come up with a new exit strategy um, to move to a situation more akin to, say, New Zealand and Australia. What do you think the impact and the legacy on these heavy-handed COVID policies will have on the population and future generations? There's some some research coming out, um, and, and I'm, I'm not an expert in this area, but there's some research coming out um, that has looked at the impact or the long-term impact of, of lockdowns on societies all over the world. Um, so, so China will um, also have you know, similar types of um, social uh, shifts and changes and challenges uh, through that. Um, but, but I also think that there's a um, the, the frustration in China is, is is a little bit different in the sense that it's it's directed towards this type of government policy um, and, and sort of a general feeling um, within the population that's starting to bubble through and you can read it in social media. And, you know, just to clarify, obviously I'm not in China, so I'm, I'm not there, I'm not experiencing it, I'm not talking to people, but just from reading um, some of the stuff that's coming through on social media um, and on you know, sort of, uh, news, news outlets, is that um, there's, there's a feeling that the, the government were have not prepared China for um, the next stage of COVID or for an exit strategy. And so I think, you know, in, in that sense, it, it certainly tarnishes um, the government's reputation amongst the Chinese people. Um, and and also this shows the inability of um, the media and um, just general politics and more generally to openly debate and discuss these types of issues in a way that there can be some sort of social consensus on how to move forward. Um, and that's, you know, that's always a challenge in China and particularly today. That was Victoria University of Wellington Politics and International Relations Associate Professor Jason Young talking about the protests in China. You're on the wire for it, Ahmed. Friday, remember you can text us in 5395 or give us a call on 0930938795. 5395 if you wish to text. 0930938795 if you wish to call. Let us know what you think of all the pieces you've heard so far. We'll be right back after this short break. The government has indicated a wow. The wire. 95 BFF presents Alex Cameron live at the Hollywood Avondale this Friday. She's a woman earning more than a man. He's back in New Zealand for the first time in two years, performing live with his six-piece band, including saxophonist and right-hand man, Roy Malloy. Alex Cameron, with support from Sean Nicholas Savage, this Friday at The Hollywood. Do not miss out. Final tickets on sale now from Mosh Ticks. Summer Hayes. 
Jesus bringing a world-class lineup to Matakana and Tauranga. With Fat Freddy's Drop, Shapeshifter, Black Comet, and King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you want to win tickets, and we know you bloody do, then just listen to 95BFM Drive all this week for your cue to enter. But you've got to have a B card. Summer Haze, December 29th at Wharipai Domain, Tauranga, and January 4th at Matakana Country Park. Tickets from summerhazenz.com. Hi, Mum. Yeah, happy birthday for the other week. Yeah, I'm fine. I'm just calling to let you know I'm going to be performing live on BFM. Yeah, with my band. No, my new band. Yeah, I have got a real job. That doesn't mean I can't still... Journalist is a real job. No, Mum, BFM. It's not just for students. It's like cool, alternative. Yeah, well, I hate you too. See you never, Mum. Every Friday, live music direct from 95BFM Drive. Friday live on 95BFM. Thanks to Parrot Dog Bear. Can anyone explain why the modern day whales are so big? The Wire. You're in the wire for it. I made it Friday. Next up, our last story of the show. I was joined by Dr. Nick Rawlins from the Paleogenetics Lab at the University of Otago to talk all things paleontology. Now, a new report has called for a partnership with Tangata Whenua and it will be at the heart of our national parks. Conservationists believe this could weaken the protection of the environment, while iwi say it could end 135 years of alienation from the land. Now, I spoke to Dr. Nick Rawlins about how paleoecology and ancient DNA could be beneficial towards this effort. We also talked about CT scans of toothed bird fossils, which could lead, uh, which sorry, has led to jaw-dropping uh, jaw discoveries about the history of modern birds. Is that interview now? Yeah, so there's been a quite a big rethink in uh, conservation in New Zealand, um, and the, the ramifications are still being um, felt. And what um, the Department of Conservation and Conservation Partners do is still being worked through. But the idea is that Tangata Whenua, um, Iwi, Runanga Hapu have been alienated from the land for 135 years with the creation of national parks, with say the Wildlife Act going in place. Um, permits to work on uh, Tauranga um, species that they haven't been able to do mahinga um, kai or, tra or traditional harvesting and so part of the rethink is that there should be traditional harvesting allowed in national parks and that conservation rather than um, uh, protecting uh, species should move to getting them to uh, levels of population size that you can allow Mahingakai, um, customary sustainable harvest. One of um, the issues we, we've got is uh, New Zealanders can return the right to um, sustainably harvest um, species, but the question is whether they should be sustainably harvested. Now, with uh, New Zealand, with the arrival of um, waves of humans and predators, the, the, the ecosystem we have in New Zealand now is fundamentally different to the ecosystem that was around at um, the time of human arrival. So paleontology and archaeology and ancient DNA, this field of paleoecology, can really help in uh, reconstructing how the ecosystem functioned, um, how genetically healthy was a species at the time of human arrival, um, uh, what were its population numbers, how did it breed, was it fast breeding, was it slow breeding, and use all that information to actually work out could you sustainably harvest 
a species going into the future, if you got populations to a pre-human number, could you sustainably harvest them or can that species only exist in a, a, a vacuum without any harvesting uh, whatsoever? And it can really help inform um, what's when the right to uh, uh, when the right to sustainably harvest species is returned. Can you actually sustainably harvest them or not? I guess this reinforces a point which we've talked about a lot over the course of this year, and that's the past is really key to the present, and it shows the importance of paleogenetics that practice. Yeah, it does. And in, uh, there was a North and South article that was published recently talking about this report and uh, the changing thoughts around national parks and conservation that um, some Tangata whenua do not want to look to the past, that we need to look to the, look to the future. But um, there's a Maori proverb, kia whakatamari to hairi whakamua, which basically means I walk into the future with my eyes fixed on the past. And that uh, encompasses what we do, what my lab does, is we, we use the past to um, inform the present and the future. And the example, a really good example of a, a work we did in our lab a, a few years ago is um, we reconstructed uh, the population size at the time of human arrival in New Zealand of sea lions in New Zealand, the prehistoric New Zealand sea lion, uh, Hooker's sea lion, the one in the southern Antarctic, and the sea lion out on the Chatham Islands. And we asked, how much harvesting would you need to do to cause the species to go extinct? We knew when humans turned up in New Zealand, we knew when the sea lions went extinct, and we had an idea of the number of humans that arrived in New Zealand and the number of humans when the sea lions went extinct. So we could calculate human growth trajectories, like human population size growth trajectories, and we had an idea of the sea lion population size, um, how many males, how many females, birth, death, immigration, immigration. And the results were really startling. It, it, um, half a sea lion to one sea lion per person per year and your entire species has gone extinct. And that's what you would call low and sustainable levels of harvesting. Um, and when you actually look at the archaeological record of what was actually harvested, you had the entire, what we call the ontogenetic size range. So the entire size range from pups to juveniles to um, teenagers to females to males. And if you harvest a female, you're also taking the unborn pup and the dependent pup. So if it came up now that um, some iwi wanted uh, to conduct Mahingukai or um, traditional harvest of sea lions in a sustainable manner, we would be saying that because the species is so slow breeding and based on the data, we would not be able to harvest that species. But for other species, you may be able to. There's a, there's a big push to be able to harvest keruru. Now, keruru in some parts of the country in high enough numbers that you could probably sustainably harvest those species with no detriment to the population of the species. CT scans of a toothed bird fossil has led to a jaw-dropping discovery. Um, without sounding too clickbaity there, what was this jaw-dropping discovery? There's been this big debate in paleontology of what defines a bird versus what defines a theropod bipede or walks on two legs meat-eating dinosaur that birds evolved from. And there have been all of these um, characteristics of birds that we thought were unique to birds, like small size relative to dinosaurs, um, 
small genome size. So the, the entire genetic blueprint of an individual as small can be to dinosaurs. And another one of them was um, uh, the palate or how the roof of the mouth operates. So in all modern birds, which we call neonates, they have uh, independently moving top and lower jaws. And But in all uh, ancient birds called neo, uh, um, paleonates, sorry, that includes the, the, the rackets like the kiwi, the moa, the emu, elephant, ostrich, but a whole lot of birds that were at the time of the dinosaurs. Um, they have had um, what we call an old palate. They could move their lower jaw, but not their upper jaw. Like we, uh, their upper jaw was fused to um, the rest of the skull like it is in humans. And what's happened over the years is these characteristics of birds have been shown to be in dinosaurs. So um, like the small genome size has been shown in uh, dinosaur fossils, and we could do a whole other talk on that one. Um, the small size has been shown that um, dinosaurs along the lineage to birds were getting uh, smaller and smaller and smaller even before birds arrived. And so there was this one key characteristic of birds that was still left, like dinosaurs had feathers and some dinosaurs would fly, so a lot of these went out the window. What this fossil has found is this is an ancient bird uh, found about 20 years ago in Belgium, just before the extinction of the dinosaurs 66 million years ago, and it has a new palate or the new roof to the mouth. It could move its upper and lower jaws independently. And this was living at the same time as a modern bird that um, could move its jaw, upper and lower jaws independently. And so what this actually shows is this key characteristic of new versus old birds, again, is completely out, um, uh, out the window. And rather than saying you've got birds and dinosaurs, you've actually got more of this grade going through from birds right through um, to dinosaurs. But the other interesting thing in this is that um, what it suggests is that uh, your ancient birds had um, the new palate, could move their, their, both their jaws independently, and your modern birds could do it, but your ratites, this moa, kiwi, ostriches, they independently went and evolved um, the old palate, that they could only move their lower jaw and not their top jaw. So you've now got the, this um, evolutionary switching between the way the jaws operate across the bird tree, but you, you, you've just got this another pillar of what defines a bird has actually fallen down, and we can think of uh, birds really as living dinosaurs. How does this change the way that paleontologists study birds, and has it not revolutionised, but just evolved that study even more? A lot of our ideas of bird evolution and have been based on modern observations that we have done of birds, of how do they differ to the dinosaur skeletons um, that you find in fossil deposits. And with uh, the field of paleontology and with increasingly uh, new fossil sites being uh, discovered, like the really exquisite ones in China that are showing uh, fossilised feathers, that you, can, you can reconstruct the colour of feathers and everything. And this new discovery like that was made in, made in Belgium is uh, we, we've been able to use the fossil record to basically test all our assumptions and hypotheses of um, what defines a bird versus what defines a dinosaur. And, and in this case, it's actually shown that one of the key tenets that defines um, uh, 
uh, new birds versus uh, old ancient birds and birds versus dinosaurs has fallen down again. So with more and more fossils that we actually discover, we can actually test all our assumptions and biases and hypotheses in the fossil record and improve our understanding of um, evolution. So Wanda Chicken is um, the oldest modern bird in the fossil record that um, was living at the time of the dinosaurs about 66 million years ago and roughly about the same time as this new fossil from um, Belgium, which was uh, um, considerably, considerably bigger. To be honest, I, it was my nickname in high school. <laughs> with the Wonder Chicken, with it being the oldest known bird, is that sort of the benchmark for a lot of a lot of the modern birds we see today? Yes, you can kind of think of it as like the, the ancestral modern um uh, modern bird. It would have shared a whole lot of characteristics with modern birds that we, we see today and it's suggesting that uh, mo- modern birds or the neonates, the ones with um, the new palate independently moving jaws um, evolved at least 66 million um, years ago. So it's pushed back the, the, the evolution of birds because there's been quite a bit of debate about when did uh, modern birds arise when you're using genetics to reconstruct Whakapapa, was it before the extinction of the dinosaurs or was it after the extinction of the dinosaurs? So um, Wanda Chicken is really good and actually provides us with this, this hard paleontological evidence that there was a modern bird at the time um, of the dinosaurs. But as to um, how you define modern birds and ancient birds slash dinosaurs, is that's um, become a lot more grey um, uh, it's not so clear-cut. You can think of it as a grade. And one of the interesting things, if you ever, if you ever uh, look at a velociraptor skeleton uh, um, and you, say, put it in what you would call a typical bird pose, is it's very hard to distinguish that from um, a bird, uh, except some of the obvious differences, like it's got teeth. That was Dr. Nick Rawlins speaking about how paleoecology and ancient DNA could be beneficial towards sustainability, as well as how a CT scan of a tooth bird fossil led to a change in the way we perceive the evolution of modern birds. That was The Wire. Ko ere te hōtaka katoa mō tēne wiki, ne te mihi ki a koutou katoa e kōrero mau ki au mō tēne rā. And that is a wrap on the Friday Wire. Thanks to everyone who spoke with us today. Professor Janet Hook from the University of Otago, Wellington. Dr Nick Rawlins from the Paleogenetics Lab at the University of Otago. Cindy Baxter from the Coal Action Network. Uh, Mike Lee, who spoke with David for City Counselling, our regular segment, as well as Jason Young, a politics and international relations professor from Victoria University of Wellington. Thanks for tuning in. You are listening to 95BFM. Next up is the is the Land of the Good Group from 1 to 2. You're on 95BFM. That was a 95BFM podcast. Support 95BFM with a B-card. Go to 95BFM.com slash sign up.